How is Gen AI impacting the tax function? Here are some thoughts from EY and Real-Time Insights. The best way I can analogize, if you think back to 30 years ago with spreadsheets, at that point in time, most tax planning and processes were done with a pencil, paper, and a calculator. But everyone thought that was going to remove the need for tax professionals. The reality is that they learned how to code spreadsheets, they learned how to build better business insights, more scenarios, and years and years later, there's more tax jobs than ever. And so we see AI as having the same impact. Learn more at ey.com. Hey there, it's Tracy Alloway. And Jill Weisenthal. We are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast, and we want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you are not going to want to miss. The Deal, co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers, and executives. Like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Jeter, and more. The Deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media, and entertainment. And dives into the wins, losses, and lessons learned along the way. From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch it on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube. another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Eisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, it has been a week. <laughs> right? Isn't that a fair way to say it? I am so tired. <laughs> I, I, really, I I got about two hours sleep last night and there's just been so much that happened. We were both at Milken yes. in Los Angeles. And for anyone who's ever been at Milken or you know, any large conference for that matter. It is just a whirlwind of meetings and discussions. And we also recorded a couple episodes. And meanwhile, against that entire background, the news is actually happening. The Fed raised rates by 50 basis points and uh, the markets crashed. They they did not have uh, they weren't they had some rough days. That's for sure. Crash. Okay, crash. Okay, yeah, they, they the markets some, went down. They a had, lot. The, the markets had some really rough days, and particularly tech growth, that kind of stuff. Uh, it just continues to get absolutely killed. Uh, we also had a jobs report. We're recording this. Uh, what is uh, speaking of being really tired and out of it? What May sixth. We're it's recording. May 6th. <laughs> we're recording this May sixth. We also got a jobs report today, which seemed decent. There is a lot going on right now. And yeah, like we were at this conference. I kind of feel like I missed a lot of it. I almost wish I was just behind my computer the whole time. Yeah, <laughs> that's a very Joe thing to say. <laughs> uh, I Well, one thing that was interesting to me. So I was actually at a like a credit market panel yeah. right when the Fed raised rates. And I got my phone out and I started videoing the audience because uh-huh. I, I thought like maybe the headline guests. would come out. It, right. Something would change in the room. Absolutely nothing happened. I mean, the 50 basis point increase was well telegraphed. But the really interesting thing was we didn't even really get much of an immediate reaction in the market. It wasn't until the next day on Thursday that everything started happening. Market soared on Wednesday. I think the Nasdaq was up like 3%. It was like, oh, coast is clear. They took 75 basis points off the table. Maybe Powell sees some signs of inflation turning a corner. And then the markets tanked. We have two great guests this, uh, this time, excellent commenters uh, both. I want to welcome to the show Luke Kawa. He is an allocation strategist at UBS Asset Management, as well as Neil Dutta, head of economics at Renaissance Macro Research. 
And I think it's Neil's first time on the show, which is amazing because we've known Neil Neil for years mm-hmm. and uh, been big ba- big fans of his uh, work. So um, thank you both for coming on the show. Neil, that's right. You haven't been on Odd Lots before. Is that correct? Uh, I haven't, Joe. Uh, what took you so long? I know. I know. It, it really is. We're, it's uh, shameful, but uh, big week and you are one of the names we needed to call. So hopefully that makes up for it. But let's start with you. Like, what's going on? What's your read of everything? Put it in a tweet well, think, for us. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the, the economy is fine. Um, you know, I think, uh, obviously, if you look at just uh, the total hours worked uh, so far this year, um, it's running around three to three and a half uh, percent. So aggregate hours worked. Uh, so if you assume underlying productivity growth of, you know, conservatively around one percent, I think underlying economic growth is around four to four and a half. So I'm not particularly worried about the economy, but clearly um, there's an adjustment that's happening with respect to the interest rate outlook. Uh, That's been going on really all year. And I think that's having some predictable consequences on equity markets. I don't know what happened one day. I mean, the Fed signaling something and the market rips and then the next day the market tanks. I mean, it's it's, it's a very bizarre sort of situation, yeah. but um, you know, generally speaking, uh, what I can tell you and what I've learned throughout the years is that, um, you know, the economy is a much slower moving entity than the financial markets and ultimately good mm-hmm. economic news can help uh, can help turn the, uh, the financial markets. And, um, you know, my sense is that uh, whatever sell off we have seen um, and tightening of financial conditions we've seen isn't going to have a significant impact on the economy. I mean, in the sense that relative to what's baked into the consensus, remember the consensus expects a slowdown this year. That's what's priced in. If you look at the blue chip consensus, it's at 2.3 for this year. The Fed's at 2.8. So you're going to see some slowing. And when when the economy slows, there'll be some days where the news comes in good and some days when it's not. Um, and, uh, and, you know, in my mind, the data hasn't really deviated from, from that, um, you know, trajectory really one way or the other. Um, and if so, you had to put a gun to my head and say, you know, do you think growth is going to come in stronger than when the consensus is for Q4 2022? My guess would be probably yes. Hmm. So there's a lot to unpack there. And before we do, why don't we bring in Luke? And I guess two questions for Luke. But one, do you share Neil's assessment of the economy that he just described? And then two... What do you think happened between Wednesday and Thursday? What was the trigger? Because it feels like that's what everyone's trying to figure out at the moment. So, uh, you know, a couple of tough ones. First off, as, as a default, I, I think you know, Neil's a, a great person to defer to <laughs> on the U.S. on the U.S. economic outlook uh, in particular. And now comes the ship. Yeah. Set him up. All right. Now, what do you, now, now you're going to show No, no, no. I, I, I completely agree. Uh all of the data, basically all the data we've got recently on the U.S. confirms the idea that the U.S. is decelerating, uh, but to a, a level that's still consistent with nominal growth that's far superior than what we got last cycle. The problem is that just like that simply doesn't matter right now. That simply is not the, the proximate uh, mover of, of resentment of risk appetite right now. And what's even more concerning is it's very difficult to tell what actually is. So I know one phrase that you know Tracy loves to use is you know flows before pros. Just this idea that you know money moving even from you know potentially you know unsophisticated investors can run over the the more sophisticated crowd. 
right now the flows are the pros. So it's it's more of hmm. a story for, for me about flows before pros, but P-R-O-S-E. There's no story <laughs> we can use like that, that is going to adequately explain uh, why risk appetite changed on such a dime between Wednesday afternoon and uh, and Thursday morning. There's, there's nothing that does it. So what we have to do uh, as asset allocators, we have to take a step back and say, well, you know, there's there's really three big risks we see on the table. Well, one is kind of Fed tightening, which is going to be, you know, possibly if it's if it's too much, it's bad for growth, bad for risk assets. If it's too little, it's probably just, you know, bad for risk assets, financial assets generally. Uh, there's the Russia's invasion, which is just creating kind of persistent supply issues and uh, threatening to exacerbate kind of some of the negative supply commodity price issues we've seen way on forward consumption and then there's china which is both the you know a supply and demand issue and i think that's mm -hmm. one thing that did spook people a little uh when the when the chinese yuan depreciated a bit there because it's like okay well if china is supposedly you know everyone thinking is about to go on this you know, decent credit old school stimulus but smaller binge uh, as as the public health situation improves, or if they're kind of more durably moving to a consumption-driven model, well, that doesn't comport with a, with the lower currency at all. Uh, it, it, the lower currency comports with the trying to be the the demand sinkhole for the rest of the world and and sop all of that up. So that's you know that's something that's concerning. All three of those risks are still there, and what we have to do when markets are this volatile are demand a, a higher margin of safety, but take a step back. Uh, increase our timeframes a little bit and think about what are we pretty confident is going to be working in a year from now because hmm. rates volatility is so high, macroeconomic uncertainty is so high that trying to really nail that one and three month call seems like uh, you know not something we should be devoting as much of our energy and our risk capital to right now. I want to zoom out for a second and I want to start this question with Luke and then I want to get uh, Neil's answer. But I, I want to zoom out because Yes, we don't know what happens day to day. It's hard to tell a story. But if we zoom out a little bit, obviously, this incredible tech boom that we've seen or the growth stock boom has clearly, I think it's safe to say, like, come to an end. I mean, it's an incredible contraction, hundreds of billions of tech wealth lost. For a lot of people, like, this is something they've never seen before. We've arguably had, like, a 12-year tech bull market a tech a bull market and growth like what's the big story about this rotation and the turn hmm. so I, th I think the big story does have a lot to do with the with the macro environment aka the the move in rates and the move in rates volatility i think that's something just on a on a correlation basis if you kind of you know plug in what you think should be moving uh stylistically based on what rates are doing that you know rates are to a certain extent driving the bus. Before you go further, just real, just real quickly, for people who don't understand it, we talk about this link a lot. It's like, oh, rates are going up, so you sell uh, Facebook or you sell ARC. It's not intuitive. Can you just walk through for listeners in a very sort of brief form, like why there's this connection between rates or rates volatility and the sort of like violence of the tech market sell-off? So, totally. So I think there's some some competing explanations. I'll, I'll go with my my preferred and it has less to do with like the it has less to do with the long duration discounting stuff. This is sure. this is more about, I, I think, generally speaking, uh, rising rates are a function of an environment in which nominal growth outcomes are you know expected to be improving and are you know fairly mm. firm. You can you know, 
quibble about that now, given how much of it is is related to kind of negative supply shocks uh, potentially. Uh, but that that's a kind of brief shorthand for why should rates rise? Rates should rise because things are good and things are good enough for central banks to remove stimulus. And you know that's a generally speaking, you know, an okay environment for growth. If growth, if economic activity is doing well, then you don't need to focus on kind of the things that might be revolutionary or innovative or be, you know, turned from a who knows what it was into a verb like Googled uh, 10 to 15 years from now. You can focus on, okay, I know that energy companies are able to produce X oil with X margin and they won't be producing more than that. So prices are going to stay within X range. And that looks very good for me right now. And we prefer that to speculating on something that might or might not be good 10 years from now. So that's that's my preferred explanation of how rates uh, kind of affects the, the growth versus value uh, argument or spectrum there. So that's you know, that's that's the headline story there. But I also think there's there's a broader issue, um, both related to growth, but also related to the idea that the kind of the, there's a bit of growth convergence uh, to be expected as you as you come out of COVID. And I think this is something that uh, you know you've covered a lot, Joe, in that just the kind of the pandemic premium, both in multiples, is is kind of come back, but it's coming back in earnings as well. And when you have more and more tech companies talk about kind of you know right sizing staffing levels or things like that, that to me translates in, into environment in which. You know, yes. growth companies are no longer prioritizing growth. They're turning on some other tap, mm. but it isn't growth. So it's a, a bit of a stylistic change that the group itself is is undergoing right now. And, you know, when when there's style drift within a cohort, that might get investors to question mm. whether the you know, whether the thesis they've applied to the group is, is still valued, valid. And that's you know something we see as an ongoing process right now. I mean, Neil, I'm curious your take on that. I mean, you've been talking about the reopening a lot. I've had a million uh, IBs with you where you point out that like Peloton is going down and Planet Fitness, the actual uh, gym uh, where people go and work out in person has been surging. I'm curious sort of your take on the same question of this sort of like bigger shift that we've seen in markets really since I guess November. Well, I think I mean, I think a lot of this just comes down to the policy response, right? I mean, the policy response following the financial crisis period was um, not particularly robust, uh, I think you could say. And as a result, um, you had a very, very, um, you know, w- not weak, but just an, not a particularly strong uh, nominal growth environment. I think we were basically hovering around four, four and a half percent for years. Um, so that kind of kind of churned the wheels of a very steady recovery. Um, so things are always getting better, but uh, we never really had that, uh, that V-shaped recovery. And, um, and so as a result, I mean, in that kind of environment, uh, growth is not widespread. And so you have, you know, performance in the markets kind of narrow to a, uh, you know, a specific group of companies that can, you know, drive growth in that kind of an environment. By contrast, uh, I think in this uh, period, uh, we had a very robust response. Um, I think, you know, through a myriad of uh, sort of fiscal support programs, I mean, the government was basically able to deliver um you know, a higher minimum wage to people without actually doing it legislatively. And, uh, you know, the Fed basically put both of its feet planted firmly uh, on the accelerator. And so, you know, I think that's been one reason why um, you've had such a strong uh, nominal growth backdrop. And so growth is more widespread. And so as a result, it's not going to narrow to a handful of 
mega cap tech names. Uh, obviously, the pandemic is important, um, as you mentioned. I mean, I, I sort of pose that question um, to our clients uh, as well. It's like, what if what we're seeing is really just the last gasp of the uh, of the pandemic unwind? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's more to it than that. But, you know, I mean, remember back in 2020, I mean, people were making the argument like the stock markets are just whistling past the graveyard. And in reality, I think the stock markets were actually following a, a script that made a lot of sense. I mean, if you look at online retail sales, they were very strong. Guess what? Those companies did really well in 2020. Uh, and by contrast, brick and mortar retailers didn't do particularly well. Restaurants didn't do particularly well and, the, and they were punished. So it wasn't like the market was just, you know, uh, you know, turning a blind eye to all these things. I mean, the market, frankly, I think was evolving the way you'd expect. And, uh, you know, now um, a lot of that's working in reverse. Right. And that is probably better for the economy, but it, it's it's not necessarily the best thing for some of these uh, right. some of these trades that had been put on over the last number of years. Neil, you mentioned financial con- conditions at the start of this conversation. And this is something that that a lot of people are talking about as well. This idea that the Fed has explicitly said that it wants to tighten financial conditions. And one part of tightening financial conditions or one component of financial conditions, one of the things that hadn't moved that much or tightened that much was stocks. So I guess my question is, how how is the Fed thinking about stocks at Mm. the moment? Or how do you think the Fed is thinking about stocks? I think they're probably encouraged to some degree that the multiple has come in quite a bit. I mean, obviously, the earnings uh, backdrop is quite strong uh, still. um, And I believe projected earnings have continued to go up. Um, and so, you know, I think they're probably looking at the sell-off in equities as, as a good thing. Obviously, if, if demand is running really hot and financial conditions ease more, that means that demand is going to get even stronger, which means that their inflation outlook will deteriorate in their mind, right? So um, I think they welcome some tightening in financial conditions. And as I mentioned, I mean, the financial conditions tightening that we've seen so far is not enough, in my view, to really... Um, send the unemployment rate meaningfully higher. I mean, um, you know, we can talk about uh, the folks over at Cameo laying off some tech workers, um, but, uh, you know, I, I just don't see it as, as, a, uh, as enough to really um, weigh on the unemployment rate. At, at best, the unemployment rate probably flattens out uh, in response to this tightening of financial conditions over, over, the, la- over the back half of the year. But, um, you know, I think in my mind, I mean, the Fed welcomes the tightening. Um, and, um, and given the kind of inflationary environment that we're in, um, this sort of idea that there's this, you know, put out there that the Fed will have your back. I mean, the strike price on that put is a lot lower than it used to be. Um, and that's, again, it goes back to this idea that, um, you know, in previous episodes, when the equity markets were were faltering, the growth outlook was faltering quite substantially as well. I don't think that that's as compelling this time around. Um, And in an environment where inflation is still high, um, I think it's really a no-brainer. As Powell mentioned this week, their goals aren't intention. Right. So, Luke, I want to bring you in on this point because, I mean, to me, the Fed never explicitly said that we want the stock market to go down. I mean, for obvious <laughs> for obvious reasons. But they said financial conditions need to come down. The only thing in the financial conditions indices, as I mentioned, that had been staying up was stocks. Why did it take so long for the market to sort of accept this message because it it did feel like Neil just put it as as a bit of a no brainer. 
Yeah, I I find it interesting in that, you know, stocks were, and you can argue they still might be, but uh, since, you know, more or less early February or late January, stocks have been kind of stuck in a boring range. You've just mm. been going from the, you know, the bottom to the top of, of, of that range. I, I think it, it was more about the inertia w- with that. I also think it had to do with, you know, despite all, all of this and despite a, you know, pretty big re-rating early in the year, like earnings have been coming in, you know, quite, quite fine at uh, the, the guidance outlook might be getting a little, a little more dour in part because of the strengthening of the U.S. dollar. There's your financial conditions right there, um, as well as, uh, you know, headwinds related to, to China and Ukraine. But I think, I think it was a lot of, you know, complacency about the, about the range we're in. But uh, our view was that as we were getting to, you know, ar- around those levels, uh, at, around top of range, that you know, those those are good places to be selling stocks. What became more challenging is like when we get to the bottom of this range, uh, as we had lately. Like, does it still make sense to be underweight stocks? And the view there is that you know, although we've had multiple compression, a lot of it, we've had multiple cr- compression at the index level, essentially to to pre-COVID levels. We also have rates more than hundred basis points higher. So your your layman's equity risk premia. I uh, would suggest that you're still not being compensated enough for the risk that either the Fed over tightens, that uh, China is a persistently larger drag on the global growth outlook for longer, or that's uh, kind of supply constraints. Uh, Twain. Sorry. Is that Twain? It's yes, Twain. Yes, that's, it's Luke's uh, dog, Twain, who's adorable. Um, yes, you can hear how adorable he is. Uh, he's <laughs> But uh, yeah, so or or you have essentially you know Russia Ukraine exacerbating uh, you know supply constraints there. So you know our view though has been even at the start of April, say when you had you know stocks doing pretty well, even then you still had dollar at uh, you know highs of the year, ten year yields at highs of the year, mortgage rates rising. The kind of tightening that's going to show up more in the forward outlook is going to come m- much more from what's happened uh, you know in mortgage rates. And uh, the kind of knock-on effects to housing, then it will from the S and P 500 going from 4,600 to you know 4,200. So in, in terms of the the Fed tightening the type of financial conditions that matter in a way that kind of influences the forward growth outlook, a lot of that uh, you know we'd argue was in place even before kind of stocks woke up to the idea that uh, you know can't sustain these kind of multiples at uh, at these kind of rates with a growth outlook that's you know still positive but slowing. You know, on the mortgage rate back up, I mean, I think it's worth pointing out that this is a highly unusual housing market. And I think Luke would obviously agree with that. Certainly Twain agrees with it. Um, <laughs> but what, what, what I will say um, is that uh, when, as economists, business economists, when we talk about housing, we're really talking about three things, right? I mean, it's, it's residential investment. That's what is booked into GDP. And residential investment is really three things. It's sales, which is broker commissions, and then it's construction and housing renovation spending. Those are the three things that go into residential investment. And the broker commission piece of it or the sales piece of it, that's only a fifth, okay? The rest of it is renovations and construction. So what I think it's important for viewers to know is that even though rates are backing up, residential investment, the likelihood is, is that it's still growing. It's still contributing to GDP. If you look at the gap between housing starts and building completions, there's still a yawning gap. That means mechanically that units under construction will continue going up. 
Okay, and as, as units can under construction keep going up, that means construction spending will keep going up, which means that residential investment will keep going up. And to the extent that rates have backed up and that's creating some spatial lock-in effects, you know, you can make a, a pretty compelling argument that, that you know, people that wanted to uh, move, maybe they spend more money on their existing home. Um, I mean, I certainly think that's consistent with a lot of the anecdotal s- stuff that I'm seeing here in my neck of the woods. But, uh, you know, look, I mean, I get why Luke is so concerned. He's a potential first-time buyer. That's not everyone. For for most people, your real cost of shelter is collapsing because your mortgage rates are fixed and everything, and your mortgage your your mortgage monthlies are fixed. Um, you know, we know that adjustable rate mortgages are not nearly uh, as uh, substantial uh, in terms of a share of, of debt outstanding as they were back in the uh, 0405 period. Uh, you know, so your real cost of shelter is declining for most people. So it's not, uh, you know, as I said, I mean, yeah, the rates back up. Yes, that's an unambiguous negative. But uh, I would be a little bit careful about extrapolating how much that's going to do to overall residential investment, which will still be, in my mind, descending in real terms. Yeah, no, I, hey, I'll, I'll definitely agree with, uh, you know, someone was asking me because I've been I've been pretty optimistic about the economy, but started to get a, a, a little more pessimistic. And they were asking me why. And I said, you know, I'm essentially the modal millennial. I thought I was convinced that you know, this cycle was going to be the one where I got into home ownership, and you know now I'm no longer convinced. And you know extrapolate that across the economy. Now I'm uh, now I'm a little uh, less uh, less optimistic. So I, I you know I do agree that this could be certainly a case of me over extrapolating my my personal circumstances, and definitely agree. Neil's uh, been kind of quite rightly banging the drum that there's a lot of pent up production coming uh, coming to housing in particular. But you know. Uh, the counterfactual of you know rates having not done what they've done uh, due to the kind of the Fed signaling a quick and expeditious move higher in rates as it would have been an, a definitely a brighter environment both for home prices and for for first time uh, potentially activity uh, going forward on on both ends. So yeah, you know, I, I think it's you know the, the counterfactual is uh, seems also clear. What are three key considerations for financial services firms following the Biden administration's executive order on AI? Here are some thoughts from EY. In light of the White House executive order on the safe, secure, and trustworthy development and use of AI, financial services firms need to demonstrate three key capabilities. The first is that they have an enterprise-wide AI governance framework aligned to industry practices, including the NIST guidelines. Firms also need to be able to demonstrate effectiveness of this governance program. The second core capability is that institutions should have a holistic view of each AI asset, including all of its uses, impacts, risks, and controls. This holistic view naturally requires significant cross-functional coordination. Finally, institutions should be providing relevant reporting to boards and senior management around their AI use cases and effectiveness of their mitigating controls. Learn more at ey.com. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Can I ask about one area where I, I another area where I think you guys disagree a little bit and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Luke at this point in time is more bearish on what's going on with China and the Chinese economy than Neil is. Um, could you maybe explain your, I, I guess, your respective thinking around what's going on in China? We've seen, you know, parts of the country basically shut down because of COVID zero policies. We've seen some supply chain issues and things like that. And there seem to be varying opinions about how much that actually matters for the global economy, how much of those troubles are going to be exported to the rest of the world. So why don't we start with uh, with Neil? Sure, Tracy. Well, I'm not, um, I don't consider myself an expert on China. Um, I try to stick to my knitting. But what I will tell you is um, it's hard for me to see conditions in China getting substantially worse than they are right now. And so for me, it's about what the blowback is to the US economy. Um, and so, you know, my sense is that the situation in China can't possibly get any worse than it is right now. Um, and, you know, my sense is that it gets somewhat better from here. Um, and that'll be a tailwind, I think, for, uh, for global demand and will help loosen supply chains uh, in 2023. So that's sort of how I'm thinking about it. Lou? Yeah, I think, I think, I think my main difference uh, is that just there's, a, there's somewhat of a degree of, of caution warranted. And it's kind of almost similar to the inflation story. When inflation surprises to the upside for so long, so long, so long, uh, and forecasts are, are slow to adjust, then the burden of proof is, is higher on the other side. The burden of proof for thinking inflation has come down uh, should be higher because you've been kind of beaten over the head with, um, with mistakes of the past. I think that's very much the case right now from a global macro perspective in terms of, in terms of looking at China. I think uh, you know, pretty much everyone could point to five or, or six forward-looking catalysts that would have inspired a lot of optimism on China over the past you know, five or five or six months. And it's been the kind of the story of uh, Lucy pulling the football away from Charlie Brown uh, each time, whether it's the, mm -hmm. you know, underperformance so large in, in 2021 that, you know, forward performance should be good. Hey, you've got the, the China's party Congress coming up in November. You're probably going to get kind of firming of growth uh, and uh, the stock market ahead of that. Or, hey, coming out of the out of the Beijing Olympics, you should really see this kind of, you know, this end of blue sky policy, this pickup of industrial production in a way that uh, kind of supports and, uh, and underpins the real estate market. A lot of these things can still happen. But I, I think the, the thing is, when China has kind of consistently disappointed on the macro side, and in a lot of cases through, through no fault of its own, uh, but in a lot of cases through policy responses that... Uh, 
global investors do not have a, a lot of visibility into, then I think you, you know the the threshold then for saying, hey, China's decisively turned around should be higher. It is something that you should approach with a little more caution, even if, you know, right. I, I would tend to agree with Neil that, you know, the, the six month, 12 month, are things better or worse? Probably better. But uh, how bad can things get in, you know, two to three weeks in China? I think we've seen in the volatility in the mar- in that market, things can move quite abruptly to the downside. So, you know, it's a, I think it's a case of why not be a little a little mm. late to the the China upside surprise party. Right. I mean, I would just point out, though, that I think it is worth pointing out that outside of China, emerging Asia looks quite good. I mean, if you look at, um, you know, for example, the PMI data outside of China looks pretty healthy. If you look at mobility data outside of China, it's been up and to the right. So factories in the rest of Asia are open. A lot of final assemblies already leaked out of China, which could be one of the reasons why the supply chain effects uh, of this haven't been as onerous, frankly. I mean, at least on the U.S. economy. I mean, the the, the impact of the Delta variant spreading all over Asia was a lot worse on uh, for for U.S. Um, you know producers delivering goods to to consumers here uh, than what we've seen lately. So, um, you know, I think if the U.S. Econ- I mean, the way I, for me, I remember, guys, I'm trying to bring it back to the U.S. because that's my right. That's I'm trying to stick to my knitting here, uh, and my sense is that. China will um, reaccelerate. I mean, whether that happens in one month, two months, six months, it's going to happen. We know that Europe is, frankly, a lot more connected to China than uh, than the U.S. is. I mean, Europe is a very large, open economy that does a lot of trade with China. So, if China is improving, it stands to reason that Europe will as well. Um, I think that's a 2023 uh, story. But that, remember. That dramatically, dramatically undercuts this idea that the U.S. is going to go into recession in 12 to 18 months. You want to call for a recession in the U.S. at a time when China and Europe may be accelerating? That to me is ridiculous. Okay, (laughs) and so um, we're obviously not going into recession this year. And so I think that's something to keep in the back of your mind. And that may be, you know, I mean, this is, this is why, again, it goes back to what we talked about earlier to start the program, right? Is that it's a very bizarre period for financial markets. I mean, this, the, the moment the bond market basically priced the recession probability out is the very moment the stock market started pricing one in. <laughs> well, so, so actually, so I want to actually talk about uh, U.S. assets again and start with Luke, because obviously a lot of people are looking at their portfolios. Maybe they're looking at their 401ks. Maybe they're looking particularly at their target date retirement funds. And they're obviously sitting on a lot of losses so far year to date. And what's when, you know, we talk about financial markets being weird. What's new is not just that stocks are down because stocks sometimes fall. It's that the bond portion of people's portfolios is also down. Right. What for? What used to across the last several years performed as this nice hedge? Stocks go down, bonds go right. up. Has not working. It's stocks down and right. bonds down because of the rate increases. What does that do, Luke? How does that change the thinking of portfolio management when? Uh, the sort of these asset allocation models that worked extremely well, one part goes down while the other part goes up, are no longer working. Well, first off, if you're in an environment where more things aren't working, it's, you know, it's grossed down. It's not being, it's, uh, you know, not taking you know, large tilts in, uh, in any one direction. It's kind of, it gets back to a, 
uh, you know, more of a you know, risk control and prioritizing relative value environment. Uh, that's that's step one. Step two, though, is expanding the kind of the range of possibilities. And one reason, obviously, why bonds have been doing so poorly is because commodity prices have been doing so well. So our view is that both as a kind of a defensive ballast in portfolios, as well as kind of the, you know, the the structural growth opportunities, particularly in uh, in the industrial metal space that, uh, you know, commodities are a, still a, a good place to, to be right now with kind of questions about demand. It's not necessarily something, you know, ag aggressively adding to at the, at the moment, but uh, kind of on a on a forward looking basis, you know, think of it this way. It's almost it's almost incompatible to think you know, inflation's going to normalize all the way to 2% and that we're going to have the necessary investments in developing commodities and in using them to support the uh, the green revolution that we're able to get you know some semblance of, of energy independence those two things seem you know fairly mm. incompatible uh so in in that kind of environment that that augurs for more of a, a structural uh increase in allocation into commodities which have been a very unloved asset class for for such a long period of time so that's something that's helped offset the uh you know the correlation uh the correlation go to one environment that we we found ourselves in generative AI impact the way financial services firms work? Here are some thoughts from EY and real-time business. At an enterprise level, how will it impact the way we work? Just like how internet changed all our lives, this technology has the potential to have a step change in how we fundamentally operate. But let me give you a few examples of what some of the use cases our clients are exploring. We are seeing our clients explore a few knowledge management use cases, for example, in, in case of wealth and asset management, providing their financial advisors with right information so that they can serve their clients better. Similarly, a claims agent in insurance or a contact center representative in case of banking and capital markets. The, the theme that we are seeing is where the machine comes in and provides contextual insights to enable the humans make better decisions, better actions, in a faster manner. Learn more at ey.com. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Well, Neil, I mean, obviously, you know, we were talking about mortgages earlier, but um, where where can rates go? Can they keep going higher? I mean, we uh, particularly at the long end. You know, you know, I think so. <laughs> um, Why? 
I think we're in a strong nominal growth environment. And, um, you know, look, I mean, if you think about where rates were the last time, I mean, the Fed ended uh, 2018 at 2.37, right? Two, I think it was a two and a quarter or two and a half. That's where the funds rate was. And we were in a four and a half percent nominal growth environment at the end of 2018. And the Fed promises to, uh, well, not promises, but they're guiding for something like that this year. And we'll probably be, I mean, you know, let's say inflation is around three to three and a half percent. I think uh, real growth will be around three, right? That may be a little bit more. Um, so you're talking about something north of a 6% nominal growth environment. So if you're going to ask me, do I think uh, equilibrium funds rate is higher? Yes, I do. Remember, it wasn't that long ago where the Fed thought when they first started doing this, uh, you know, the SCP, the Summary of Economic Projections, they thought that they thought equilibrium funds rate was four and a quarter, four and a quarter with debt service ratios a lot worse than they are now, with um, labor markets a lot more sluggish than they are now, with um, business investment a lot weaker than it was than it is now. Oh, and by the way, households are sitting on um, you know, an excess savings pile, uh, you know, over $2 trillion and us hitting the most favorable demographic patch that we've seen in our careers. So yes, if you're going to ask me, do I think equilibrium rates are higher? The terminal funds rate is higher. Yes, I do. And if that makes me crazy, um, you know, so, so be it. But, uh, you know, I mean, I think in the near term, there's probably some opportunity for fixed income, right? I mean, you know, it's, it's one of these funny things that you've seen, right? It's like, it's not risk parity, it's risk parody. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, but I, I do think, I mean, look, there's, I don't think there's much more the markets can price in for the Fed right now. Um, and I think that probably, you know, helps, um, you know, the soft landing, the softish landing case that, that uh, the Fed wants to tell. Um, but I think whatever pause we see, um, you know, after they get to neutral, is, um, you know, the next move after that is going to be additional hikes. Huh. So to like to piggyback somewhat on, on Neil say, what Neil's saying, and, you know, for right now, right now, our stance is that, uh, you know, better to be neutral the, the long end just by virtue of, you know, how much has been priced in already. But one thing that's clearly different this cycle versus the last one is that the the global nature of central bank tightening and what that's doing to, to global term premia. So, you know, starting in 2012, you have the you know BOJ really cranking up uh, QE. You have the ECB uh, BOE joining not too long, really cranking it up. Uh, after that, you know, this cycle, that's essentially all going in reverse. And even in the face of a, uh, you know, a, a pretty big shock to, you know, potentially real incomes and, and growth, the ECB is, is telegraphing a, a move out of negative interest rate policy. This is, this is something that is, you know, clearly a, uh, clearly going to push global term premium higher and, and has the lot. So if you, if you go back to Lael Brainard's speech about quantitative tightening in early April that a lot of people were, were focusing on is, you know, this is something that's going to drive, you know, global bond markets. Well, boons have underperformed since that period of time. We're, we're in an environment where the, the fact that the ECB is, is kind of uh, signaling what it's signaling, and it seems that Every day, there's a kind of pulling forward of, of some kind of ECB-related uh, tightening messaging. Mm. Uh, that's what's driving still the bust in global bonds. Huh. So if you if you look at lately, and one thing that uh, honestly I, I found a little bit confusing in the aftermath of the Fed is that U.S. bond volatility, uh, implied volatility, hasn't really calmed down too much. And it might be that U.S. bond volatility can't calm down 
because of what's happening across the pond. Hmm. I have what is perhaps a dumb question, but can everyone tighten at once? I mean, I know everyone can technically tighten at once, but does it have the same impact? Because back when we were easing many, many years ago, we used to talk about competitive QE and sort of competitive devaluations right. and things like that. So does it have the same impact if everyone is doing this at the same time? I, I would argue that uh, because like last time you had a, a much more focused impact on the U.S. because essentially, you know, the, the U.S. was the only one tightening dollar up and then you have dollar up also kind of exports tighter credit conditions right. to the rest of the world. So we, we have everyone going this time, but the dollar is still uh, with a lot of strength and largely due to still like very good growth differentials and the kind of possibility of more left tail uh, economic risks in, in Europe and China that still, you know, exist to, to varying degrees. But, uh, you know, I would think conceptually, in theory, an environment where everyone's tightening is is on net uh, kind of is less tight uh, mm -hmm. than uh, than the than the counterfactual. That yeah. uh, It's actually easier mm -hmm. to go if it's synchronized uh, rather than if it's kind of uh, one country and particularly U.S. centric. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I would just add, I, I, I would tend to agree. I guess the one thing I would add to that is, you know, when you look at the dollar performance, um, you know, right now versus, you know, let's say back in 2014 when, when you know, the, like Stan Fisher was making speeches about what the dollar impact is on GDP growth and inflation. Um, you know, what's interesting now is just, I guess, is the differentiation that I'm seeing in, in some of the in some of the dollar's performance. I mean, obviously, uh, the dollar back then was like rallying against pretty much everything in, um, you know, and, and here it feels like uh, it's more like DM related. I mean, so so it's obviously the dollar is very strong against the euro. It's very strong against the yen. But if you look at some of the emerging market commodity uh, currencies, I mean, to Luke's point about how well commodities are done, those currencies are actually hanging in there, hmm. you know, um, and that's been something that's been a bit different um, than what we've seen, uh, you know, saw before. So I, I just think that that's interesting. But generally speaking, yes, I think it's much easier on the Fed if everyone's also hiking. I know we have a, just a few more minutes here. You know, again, people looking at their portfolios, obviously we've talked about it a ton, tech and growth getting clobbered, et cetera. Luke, when, and you know, you talk about, okay, in this environment, maybe the answer is commodities exposure. It's sort of like the one thing that's breaking the uh, all correlations go to one. But, you know, when I look at some of these uh, tech names and SPAC names and all this stuff, I just see like a complete, like in some cases, it's a much bigger massacre than probably people are ever imagining. And people, stocks down 95% in many cases for brands that people know. What would be the conditions in which you, one would start looking back to this area that's gotten hit so hard? What would be the sort of either macro conditions or flows uh, uh, that you'd look for to say like, okay, maybe this has been enough and start start looking for opportunities. So the, the and the difficulty in so doing just as, as a starting point is yeah. the fact that, you know, if you go from a you know, 100 P to a 50 P, well, you're still you know, 50 you're, you're not, <laughs> not exactly. So that uh, you know, that's that's a bit of a challenge here. What would what would kind of warrant it is a is a larger pricing of uh, of recession risk, certainly. So right now, in terms of like, if you look at what's the you know, what's the the hump in the in the euro dollar curve or, or anything it's it's not it's not material it doesn't suggest you know traders ascribing 
a lot of odds to a material hmm. uh, cutting cycle from the Fed after this kind of quick series of hikes. If that were to grow larger at the same time as you get um, as the same time as you get uh, kind of more visible slowing in uh, in the U.S. and the, the global economy as well. You know, that would be that would certainly be something uh, goods demand clearly coming off the boil. And it to be to be fair, goods demand, uh, you know, in, in terms of PCE basis, like hasn't really you know done too much for uh, for about for about a year now. You know, that's something that, you know, should the should that side of the you know economy slow more? That's something that's going to, I, I would suggest, probably prompt investor attention to turn back more to, to growth names. But it's I, I think the fact that it hasn't happened yet is one of the one of the signals along with the euro dollar curve that mm. you know there's not a lot of recession risk being priced right now and that's you know, that's something that's odd to think about as uh, as stocks being as volatile as they are but uh you know, i think that's something to, to hang your hat right on uh on right now in terms of uh looking at the forward outlook neil yeah, thanks, Tracy. Well, I would just, I mean, look, the, the, the equity markets, um, the setup really does look very much like a, a late cycle type of uh, dynamic. Now, obviously, there can be multiple sort of market cycles within a broader economic one. Um, but if you look, I mean, for example, defenses, defensives are outperforming cyclicals. We've seen utility stocks better bid, staples better bid. Um, we've seen you know significant sell-offs and discretionary. I, I would just say that there's only so long that the markets can price in a late cycle dynamic and then not actually have it happen in the economy. So if, if you're thinking about something like strategic asset allocation, my view would basically be to use rallies and defensive positions as opportunities to add to cyclical ones, because I do think that's probably the next leg of the market cycle. Um, so that that's sort of uh, that's sort of how I, I'm thinking about it. When I when I look at the the broader economy, um, as I say, I mean bringing it back to to, to the U.S. economy, there's really uh, you know my concern dial is not particularly um, high. I mean it, it's it's sort of interesting to see like sell side analysts tripping over themselves to see who can pencil in the highest recession probabilities over the next two years. But, you know, in my mind, it's really no higher than it normally is. I mean, what would actually decline if you were to have a recession? Like housing is, we're talking about how we don't have enough cars and we don't have enough homes. <laughs> um, so what goes down? Commercial real estate, that's already as low as it could possibly be relative to GDP. Um, so, I mean, it could be, I guess you could make the argument of durable goods, but even there, you know, things like motor vehicle sales, have basically, um, you know, as a share of, of consumption, they've, they've already kind of reverted to trends. So, you know, I, I just don't really see it. I mean, what are we going to talk about? The great, uh, the great household furnishing uh, recession of 2022. <laughs> it's just, um, it just doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, and that's why I say, if, if you're, if you're in, if you're asset allocating here, um, I think we're at a point now where it's probably, it's, it, to me, it, it makes sense to pick up some of these, uh, these cyclical names uh, that have been quite beaten down. And as I say, I mean, this is something that Luke pointed to earlier, but if you think about the markets, it's been three things, right? It's been the Fed, it's been Russia, Ukraine. So the situation in Eastern Europe, it's been China. Okay, so like take each of those in turn, the Fed. The Fed in my mind is going to be less a source of instability for the financial markets over the remainder of the year. I mean, Powell has basically given us forward guidance for the first time in a while, right? I mean basically 50 basis point moves followed by there's a little bit more certainty in the Fed outlook than there has been. 
And, uh, you know, we talked about China. Um, I think I even got Luke to acknowledge that China will look better uh, in the next 12, 12 to 12 months. But if China's looking better in the next 12 months, um, then Europe will too, right? So those three areas that have been beating down the markets and creating this sort of instability and volatility that we've seen, uh, I think that's likely to abate. So that's why I say if I had to make a market call, that would be it. Well, you guys are great. This could uh, go on a lot further, but we got to leave it there. Neil and Luke, so much uh, appreciate you coming on Odd Lodge to help us understand what's been, I mean, we say it's been a busy week, but really an extraordinary year so far mm. overall. So um, thank you for coming on and uh, helping us make sense of the world. Oh, we're we're going to stay on and keep bickering. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Just re please record it, then send us the audio. Right? <laughs> Thanks so much, guys. That was really fun. Thank you. You know what uh, that conversation made me think? This is going to be a meta uh, point, and then we could get to the substance. <laughs> the best sort of discussions are between guests who agree on a lot and share a lot of the same premises, but uh, disagree on a few key things. Like, right. You have to sort of like share a common like assumption about how the world works. Those are the best conversations. Right, because otherwise it's often two people talking past each other. Exactly right. And that was not, they were not talking past each other. Well, I got to say, I can't believe we hadn't had Neil on before, but he's great, obviously. And Luke, every time we have Luke on, I'm so proud because Luke used <laughs> to be our colleague. And I just love actually, you know, he used to write for our team. And I love the fact that he's now a guest on All Thoughts talking so knowledgeably yeah. about macro. Yeah, a little tear coming, yeah, coming, yeah, coming tear, to my eye thinking about uh, Luke's trajectory. But yeah, no, I thought that was really helpful. I mean, so many like interesting points. I mean, you know, it's Luke brought this up mm. uh, that I hadn't really thought of. But, you know, it's interesting for all of the double dip or not double dip, but like uh, soft landing, hard landing fears, like actually so far, like the classical recession signals. And they talked about the uh, euro dollar curve, like. The market is not really pricing one in yet. Right. It seems like stocks have overreacted compared to fixed income. But the other thing, I mean, the other thing I keep thinking is just how, I don't want to say obvious, but yes, obvious is the word, how obvious it was that there would be a correction in stocks at one point. Because, I mean, the Fed, we spoke about this. The Fed hasn't explicitly said it yeah. wants stocks to go down, but it talked about tightening financial conditions. Yeah. And then, you know, for years we were talking about valuations were frothy, that this yeah. was something that was going to start reverting once interest rates start hiking. And then lo and behold, they did. Right. Like, I think the surprising thing, it's never easy in real time to make trade. So it's never like, oh, now here comes an easy trade. Mm -hmm. But I would say the sort of surprising thing is if you look at this sort of narrative of what happened this year, it's kind of straightforward. Inflation picked up and the Fed said, OK, now we're going to go in a hiking cycle. Oh, and uh, P.S. The way that we control inflation is through financial conditions. <laughs> and so we're going to like and do stocks this are part the, of those. And yeah. stocks are like a key part of financial conditions. It was it was the obvious trade. Just teleport me back to November or January when the <laughs> Fed started pivoting, and I could have been a I could have been a genius. Yeah, I guess it's like the timing aspect is is the most mysterious of all of this, and why you know why we saw a rally on Wednesday after yeah. the hike actually happened, and it wasn't until Thursday that stocks started dropping off. That's the only thing that remains 
something this, of a head scratcher. Yeah, the week was uh was super weird, that's for sure. Yeah, it was. Um, shall we leave it there? Let's, let's leave it there. Let, let's go take a break and you know, let's head into the weekend. All right. Uh this has been another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at the stalwart. Follow our guests, Luke Kawa. He's at LJ Kawa. Neil Dutta isn't technically on Twitter, but I think he often <laughs> contributes to the handle of his firm, Renaissance Macro. At, they're at RenMac LLC. Follow our producer, Carmen Rodriguez, at Carmen Arman. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcasts, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thank you.